Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. My name is Cheryl, and with the help of voice actor Paul Stefano, this episode will summarize the evidence in the Chandler case. You can find all our source material and reach out to us through our website, michaeljacksoncasefornessense.com. The Chandler allegations took me the longest to assess guilt or innocence. In the end, I found the evidence just as conclusive as all the other cases. But it did take me longer because this case never got to court. In the other three cases, you have many sworn statements that have been convincingly debunked by defense evidence. But the Chandler case requires more legwork to examine a lot of different sources, especially from each of the Chandlers, and compare these to each other and to known facts in Jackson's life. In each step of the process, I saw the evidence building towards Jackson's innocence, and it reached a point where the exculpatory evidence was overwhelming. So in order to summarize the evidence presented in the past four episodes, we're going to cover 11 factors that should be considered when weighing the credibility of the Chandler allegations. Number one, the most important factor to consider in the Chandler allegations is that we are only hearing one side of the story, and the accuser and his father were never subjected to cross-examination. Evan and Jordan Chandler, by their own words, never wanted to bring this case to trial. Judging the merits of an accusation without giving the other side the legal opportunity to question the accuser is unfair. The Chandler's version of the story has been repeated consistently through the media, pushed by Evan himself and D.A. Tom Snedden and police investigators. There's also the tabloid stories by former Neverland employees that crossed into mainstream media. Michael Jackson never had the opportunity to present evidence that may have completely discredited the Chandler's claims, like you'll see happen during the trial with the second accuser in 2005. Much of the evidence presented in these past four episodes uses Evan Chandler's own words against himself, and Jordan's words against himself or his mother's testimony. If there's so much discrediting evidence just using the Chandler's own words, think of how much more evidence there would be if Jackson actually put forward a defense. For anyone who wants to fairly weigh the Chandler allegations, this reality should be acknowledged. Whoever controls the narrative of a story is at a powerful advantage. It's incredibly biasing to only have one side of a story, and it's unfair to assign guilt with a one-sided story. Number two, the second major factor to consider in the Chandler allegations is that you have an unreliable confession. If you follow expert guidelines in child forensic interviewing, Jordan's confession would be considered unreliable. Evan repeatedly uses intimidation, leading questioning, and threats before Jordan changes his story. Once Evan got his confession, he didn't let Jordan out of his sight and wouldn't let Jordan's own mother question him without Evan right by his side. Jordan's mother thought that Evan had brainwashed him. This coerced confession on its own should lead to reasonable doubt about these accusations. Number 3. Consider the Settlement Terms Especially considering these are horrific child sex abuse claims, it should be weighed in Jackson's favor that Jordan and his parents were willing to sign a settlement agreement in which Michael Jackson disclaims any wrongdoing against all three of the Chandlers. 
and he states in the agreement that the only reason he was settling was to preserve his public image, not because he committed any offense. Number four, the fact that two grand juries did not indict Jackson should weigh in his favor. It's important to remember that the defense is not present in grand jury proceedings. The jury is only seeing witnesses brought forward and questioned by the prosecution, and only seeing evidence filtered through the prosecution's lens. D.A. Tom Snedden was ruthless in his pursuit of Michael Jackson and went above and beyond in terms of money, time, and resources. He brought everything he had to those grand juries, and they found nothing incriminating. Which leads to number five. Nothing incriminating was found in the police raids, and there was no evidence of payoffs. The fact that nothing incriminating was found in any of the raids is significant exculpatory evidence, because child pornography is almost always found in the possession of a child molester. Here's an excerpt from a Department of Justice analysis about the behaviors of child molesters. Law enforcement investigations have verified that pedophiles almost always collect child pornography or child erotica. Collection is the key word here. It does not mean that pedophiles merely view pornography; they save it. It comes to represent their most cherished sexual fantasies. They typically collect books, magazines, articles, newspapers, photographs, movies, etc. Better educated and more affluent pedophiles tend to have larger collections. After completely tearing apart Jackson's Neverland and Havenhurst homes and his LA condo, no child pornography was found. Not even after an extensive analysis by the FBI of Jackson's computers, and meticulously reviewing thousands of photographs and books, and consider that over a dozen members of Jackson's staff ended up selling stories to the tabloids, filing lawsuits, and testifying against Jackson in the Chandler and Arvizo cases. Yet none of these former employees, who were very willing to say bad things about Jackson, reported seeing child pornography or hiding it prior to the raid. Police interviewed everyone on Jackson's staff. Yet none of these disgruntled employees, who Snedden brought forward in Jackson's criminal trial, testified to hiding evidence or being paid off. Adrian McManus, the maid who very freely tells salacious stories about Jackson. Testified that the Neverland raid in 1993 was a complete surprise. No one knew, so the fact that no child pornography was found on Jackson's properties should be weighed in his favor. Number six, Jackson's known actions and inactions indicate innocence. By Evan Chandler's own account, Michael Jackson refused to pay him, even when Evan was threatening that he would go public if Jackson didn't pay. If Michael Jackson was guilty, he should have negotiated with Evan early on. Evan made it absolutely clear that he wanted money, or else he was going to allege abuse. Not only did Jackson not pay up for silence, his investigator antagonized Evan with his insulting offers. These faux negotiations by Jackson indicate an innocent man trying to reveal extortion. A guilty Michael Jackson, desperate to hide a secret, would have talked with Evan, mitigated tensions, and done whatever was necessary to make Evan happy. So Jackson's refusal to pay Evan behind the scenes should be seen in favor of his innocence. Another action by Jackson that indicates innocence is how he brought together many kids and their families at the same time at Neverland. His friends say he was very open and welcoming with them. 
and they could invite themselves to Neverland any time. I previously mentioned Frank Cassio's story of Jackson inviting Jordan to hang out with Frank while Jackson was out for an event. All of this interaction between kids and their families would be incredibly risky for a guilty Michael Jackson. His accusers describe him as zealously guarding a secret sex abuse. But these family and friend gatherings with no barriers or secretiveness don't support that characterization. All it would take would be one slip by one person in any of these gatherings to potentially destroy Jackson's career, but that never happened. I find it unlikely that a guilty Jackson would take that risk. Number 7. Evan Chandler's known words and actions undermine his credibility. First, you have the ethics breaches within his profession. In his own words, Evan was willing to use the power of his profession to take advantage of both Michael Jackson and his own son, while under the influence of drugs that he administered. And through the stories of Carrie Fisher and his other patients, we see Evan as a dentist willing to do unnecessary procedures to feed their drug habits. Evan appears to have his own moral code outside the law. There's also the issue of Evan's anger, expressed physically against Dave Schwartz and Jordan, and expressed verbally to just about everyone. And there's Evan's sense of entitlement and self focus after Michael Jackson shuts him out. There's the many illogical and nonsensical parts of Evan's story, such as seeing Jackson and Jordan in bed and never mentioning it to Jordan's mom, to Dave Schwartz, Or even in court when he was trying to convince a judge to give him custody. Or the strange and important scene of Evan greeting Jackson happily with a warm hug at a meeting which took place after Jordan allegedly confessed abuse to his father, and after Evan raged on the phone with Dave about how he wanted to destroy Jackson. It's a scene that reveals what Evan's anger was really about being left out, not the abuse of Jordan. There's also the issue of Evan's lack of transparency when he uses anyone to corroborate his narrative of abuse, such as Maid Blanca Francia or Latoya, without presenting their credibility issues. There's the lack of transparency with Jordan's psychiatrist interview. Where is the introduction and conclusion? What drug was used in Jordan's sedation? Why didn't Evan report Jordan's alleged confession until many weeks afterwards? Because of Evan's ethics issues, his lack of transparency, his obsessive behavior, the way he lets his emotions drive his actions, and his illogical, overly dramatized, and misleading stories, I don't find a basis to trust Evan's account. And because Jordan's initial denial of abuse was only changed when he was in his dad's custody and he withstood threatening questioning and harassment, Jordan's accusation is completely intertwined with his father's. And if I can't trust the father and his lawyer's behavior when they had Jordan, I can't trust Jordan's new story, which on its own has many flaws and which parrots his father's speech. Number 8. Jordan Chandler's known actions, words, and omissions raise doubts about his allegations. Jordan got the circumcision issue wrong. Which is one of the strongest pieces of evidence in favor of Jackson. Jordan also fails to describe anything unusual about Jackson's scalp when describing oral sex. Jordan avoids mentioning all the other kids who were with him on his visits to Neverland, 
and avoids mentioning where he was actually spending the most time at his own house. Other considerations are that Jordan refused to testify against Jackson, and there were multiple witnesses ready to testify in 2005 that Jordan told them Jackson wasn't capable of child molestation. And even though Jordan said Jackson laid a guilt trip on him, and he did not like the sex abuse. Jordan never revealed any suspicious signs to those around him, including his parents. Even upon later reflection, June Chandler only testified that Jordan wanted to spend a lot of time with Jackson and liked to dress like him. But that can apply to an innocent or guilty scenario. According to Evan himself, even under his harassment and threats, Jordan revealed no fears or hesitations, and nothing suspicious until the confession under anesthesia. Although we know from psychology experts that it's common to avoid direct disclosure, just about every advocacy source I found states that it's typical for a victim to exhibit some signs of sex abuse. Rain is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, and here is their list of the most common warning signs in teens: unusual weight gain or weight loss, unhealthy eating patterns, persistent sadness. Lack of energy or changes in sleep, anxiety or worry, falling grades, changes in self-care, such as paying less attention to hygiene or appearance, self-harming behavior, expressing thoughts about suicide or suicide behavior, drinking or drug use. This lack of typical signs of abuse in Jordan, on its own, isn't significant, but I think it's worth factoring into the larger exculpatory evidence of the case. Number nine, the number of children and their family members vouching for Jackson's innocence overwhelmingly outweighs the number of accusers. These kids and their families that say absolutely nothing happened had the same type of friendship as the Chandlers, hanging out with Jackson, getting gifts, staying at Neverland. There were hundreds of witnesses questioned by police, and around thirty children underwent these intimidating police interviews, some without their parents. And not one corroborated abuse, except eventually for Jason Francia, who was not found credible when testifying in Jackson's 2005 trial. So it stands out to me that out of dozens of kids interviewed, the only two that ended up as accusers, Jordan Chandler and Jason Francia, both initially denied abuse. Both only changed their stories under repeated coercive questioning. And both had parents who were angry with Jackson, involved in provably deceptive behavior, and sought money from Jackson with no interest in filing criminal charges. Number ten, the media incentive in the Michael Jackson as a child molester story is a major factor in the Chandler allegations. Because of the profit bias towards a guilty narrative, reporters were eager to accept the tantalizing accounts peddled by Evan Chandler and Victor Gutierrez. The trial by media in the Chandler allegations was biased against Jackson and swayed public opinion. The biggest celebrity in the world as a child molester was just too juicy of a story not to promote, which made it easy to overlook the accuser's credibility problems. There was also a mutual benefit between the media and the district attorney's office, and Tom Snedden took full advantage of this through his inflammatory interviews and press conferences, and through the close relationship he developed with hard copy reporter Diane Diamond. And this leads to our final factor to take under consideration: number eleven, 
DA Tom Snedden and police investigators were only looking to confirm their judgment of Jackson's guilt. Snedden made an early judgment that Jackson was guilty, based on the Chandler stories and possibly influenced by Victor Gutierrez. So he ignored the lack of evidence from the raids and the interviews with other children. All that Snedden was left with was a coerced, shaky confession by Jason Francia, which he played up in the media like it was a solid case. The only other evidence he had were the accounts by former employees who changed their stories for tabloid money and were shown in court to be liars and have shady histories. But Snedden disregarded their weaknesses because it was the only evidence he had. He was not suspicious of Jordan's coerced confession. He was not suspicious of the Chandlers negotiating for money before taking the allegations public. And he was not suspicious of the Chandlers' disinterest in any kind of criminal justice against Jackson. Snedden was blinded to the exculpatory evidence because of his confidence in his own judgment of Jackson's guilt. So what are we left with after summarizing the evidence in the Chandler case? From my perspective, the only unresolved issue is understanding Jackson's relationships with the families he befriended across the globe. I think it's important to give these friends the time and space to share in their own words the nature of their relationships with Michael Jackson. You'll hear some stories from these families in Season 1, but it's not until Season 2, when we look at Jackson's background, that we'll be focusing on giving a voice to these families' personal experiences with Jackson. But apart from that remaining question, I found no basis to trust the Chandler allegations. Considering the unreliable confession, getting the circumcision issue wrong, the illogical stories of abuse, an unethical and emotionally unstable father and his unethical lawyer, Jackson's refusal to pay hush money, Jackson's compromised staff, who doesn't report any child pornography and none is found, despite many search warrants, considering no one is found to have been paid off, Two grand juries fail to indict Jackson, and Jordan Chandler refuses to testify. Considering that you have dozens of families in the same situation as the Chandlers, but telling police that Jackson is innocent, and your only witnesses are tabloid informants with grudges against Jackson. Considering that Michael Jackson is targeted on all sides by people obsessed with and financially motivated to bringing him down. Evan Chandler, Victor Gutierrez, Tom Snedden, and the media. Considering all of it damages the credibility of the Chandler allegations. If I took any one of these credibility issues by itself, it would be enough for me to establish reasonable doubt. But when taken together, I find the evidence overwhelmingly supports Michael Jackson's innocence. And that wraps up our series on the Chandler allegations. If you have any questions or comments about our presentation of the Chandler case, you can reach out to us through our website or on Twitter at Case4Innocence. In the next episode, we'll begin part one of the Arviso allegations. We'll discuss the Arviso family background, how Michael Jackson meets the Arviso family, how the Bashir documentary directly leads to the accusations of abuse, and we'll end with the police raids and arrest of Michael Jackson. We'd like to thank the following websites that were valuable in guiding my research. The Michael Jackson Allegations, Turning the Tables on the Chandlers, and Vindicating Michael. 
You can find these and all source material for this podcast on our website, michaeljacksoncasefornescence.com. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. 